Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15 on 1201, if you're using the church Bibles. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Often on a Saturday night, Hannah and I sit down to watch a film. And I hope that you won't judge me too much if I tell you that last Saturday night, we watched a film called How to Train Your Dragon. Just in case you haven't seen it, uh, the story is set on an island called Burke, which is inhabited by Vikings, who spend their days trying to fend off, rather unsuccessfully, an army of invading dragons. And the plot of the film explores two competing visions, two competing philosophies for their self-protection. On the one hand, there are the traditionalists, led by Stoic, the island's brawny chief. And his approach basically boils down to just try harder. Keep fighting the dragons like we've always done, but with more firepower, more ammunition, more aggression. The problem is it, it doesn't really work. A Stoic tries so hard, and yet however hard he tries, the dragons always come back bigger and stronger than before. On the other hand, there is Hiccup, his son, who discovers in the course of the film that there is a better way. Instead of fighting the dragons, you can train the dragons. And of course, that proves to be the winning formula. This evening, we're thinking not so much about how to train your dragon as about how to train your life, your desires, your deeds. It's a question which even non-Christians are asking. Just in the last few weeks, I've heard a few people who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus asking things like, how do I stop putting off the things that I know are good for me? Why can't I break free of my own destructive habits? And as I'm sure you all know, the internet is awash with videos about how to take back control of your life, how to stop wasting your time, how to train yourself to be more self-controlled. It's also a question which, as Christians, we should be asking. We saw last week that the Bible calls us, as disciples of Jesus, to live self-controlled lives that adorn the gospel. And of course, we won't do that perfectly in this life. Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin and broken its power to condemn, but the presence of sin will remain with us until the day he returns. And yet, and yet, that doesn't mean we can't make any progress towards godliness in this life. We can, and we must. So how? How do you train your life, your desires, your deeds. Like the Vikings in How to Train Your Dragon, the false teachers on Crete had a very simple answer. Just try harder. Get circumcised. Avoid certain foods. Don't get married. More religion, more rules, more effort. 
And there are plenty of people today preaching the same thing. In the religious world, that's what so much teaching so often boils down to. Just do more. Go to mass. Pray five times a day. Go on pilgrimage. Get ordained. And in the secular world, it's no different. Go and watch one of those YouTube videos about self-control, and all they will give you is a long list of new rules to keep. Take a cold shower. Get up early. Go to the gym. Delete your social media. Practice meditation for at least half an hour. Just try harder. We all think we can do it, don't we? Even if we're not drawn to any of the things that I've mentioned, we all want to believe that really we can change ourselves, that we don't need to rely on anyone else. The problem is it doesn't work. The false teachers in Titus were just as godless as the rest of Crete. And often so are religious people today. All those rules, all those routines, all that religion, it it gives you a boost in the short term, sure, for a week or a day, maybe a month at most. But it can't produce long-term change, lasting change. And after a while, the same sins, the same old habits, they come back again. After a while, we all fall back into the same ways. But what if we didn't have to? What if there was a better way, a way that we could train our desires and our deeds, like Hiccup and his dragon, a way that didn't leave us on our own just to try harder, a way that produced real transformation, that produced lasting change. The wonderful news of this passage in Titus is that there is. And its name is grace. Verse 11, again, of our passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. A few weeks ago, I went down to London Bridge to look around HMS Belfast at the big battleship on the river. And as I was looking around the bottom deck, I found myself standing in the boiler room looking at this enormous 82,000 horsepower engine for driving this ship through the waves of the Atlantic Ocean. And that is what our passage this evening is like. It's an engine room. That word for at the beginning of verse 11 tells us that everything Paul says in these verses serves as an engine for driving the godly life in verses 1 to 10, the passage that we looked at last week. So this is the turbocharged V8 under the bonnet of the transformed Christian household. And the fuel that it runs on? Grace. For the grace of God has appeared God's grace means his free, unmerited favor towards those who believe in Jesus. His free, unmerited favor to those who believe in Jesus. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. It's unmerited. Nothing you do could ever pay for it, even if you could. Nothing you do could ever pay God back for it, even if you could. 
It secures God's favor. It's the riches of his kingdom at the expense of his son. It means life when we deserve death. Forgiveness when we deserve condemnation. Relationship with God when we deserve his wrath. And in Jesus, Paul says, God's grace has appeared. It's been revealed. It's been made manifest. Notice that it doesn't say the grace of God has arrived, as if to imply that God wasn't gracious before. When in reality, God has been gracious for all time. It's in his very nature. Think of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. No, the Lord has always been gracious. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus, his grace was hidden in some sense. It wasn't clear to everyone. Those words from Exodus 34 were spoken only to Moses. And even he couldn't see God's face. But now, now in Jesus, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. It's been revealed for all to see. How? Verse 11 again. By bringing salvation for all people. That is, all people without distinction. Not all people without exception. Every kind of individual. Not every single individual. I grew up not far from the jewellery quarter in Birmingham, where something like 40% of all the jewellery in the UK is made. And as I walked down those shop-laden streets as a, a young, brummy lad, every jeweller would have a huge display case with diamonds and rubies and sapphires, all of them lit up in dazzling white light. And Paul is saying that like one of those shop windows... The Lord Jesus has put the grace of God on display by dying on the cross, by taking away all our sin, by bringing salvation to all people, Jew, Gentile, black, white, gay, straight, if they trust in Jesus. He's put the grace of God on display. So do you see what the false teachers on Crete were getting so wrong? By telling people to do, 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 to keep more rules, to go and get circumcised, to just try harder, they were acting as if God's grace was still hidden, as if, as if we were still in the dingiest parts of the Old Testament and God hadn't ready made his salvation known to all people. They were telling people to keep doing when God had already said done. In the Lord Jesus. You might have guessed from my trip to HMS Belfast. I, I quite like World War II history. I'm a bit of a geek. And one of my favorite facts from World War II is about this Japanese soldier who refused to believe that the war was over in 1945. I couldn't conceive of the fact that Japan had not won the war. His name was Hiru Inoda. And in the end, he kept fighting in the Filipino jungle for over 29 years thinking that the war was still going on. And that is what Paul says anyone is like 
who thinks that they can get right with God by just trying harder. Fighting and struggling to justify yourself when God's already won the war for you. Trying to make yourself pure by keeping all these rules when you're already perfect because of what Jesus has done. Maybe you're here tonight and that's exactly what you've been trying to do. Toiling away, trying to live a good life, trying to get on the right terms with God. And you know you can't do it. Maybe you feel weighed down by all the times you've tried and failed. You feel dirty and you can't get yourself clean. You feel ashamed of your failures and you don't know who could accept you. But do you know that God does? Verse 11 of our passage tells us that he loves you more than you could imagine. Do you know that God can? Verse 11 of our passage tells us he's washed you whiter than snow. And it tells us that it's all for free. For the grace of God has appeared If you're here this evening and you want to receive that grace for the first time, please tell someone before you leave. We would love to pray with you and help you. Of course, some of you are sitting there thinking, great, if it's all for free, I guess we don't need to bother with the godliness then, do we? And so you, Paul says, not so fast. Because the grace of God doesn't just save us, it also trains us. Verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. So God's grace is not just a paramedic who revives our dead spiritual pulse. It's also a physio, a personal trainer, a gym buddy who helps us to build ourselves up in spiritual strength. And in the rest of our passage, Paul tells us three things about this training. First, what grace teaches, then when grace teaches, and finally, who grace teaches. So first, what grace teaches us. Last year, my baby niece learned to say yes and no for the first time. And so for a few months... We had a lot of fun asking her all these different questions to see what the answer would be. And often, it was fairly predictable. Would you like to watch Peppa Pig? Yes. Would you like to eat your broccoli? No. In the same sort of way, grace teaches us to say yes to some things and no to others. But whereas my niece did not always make the best choices for herself, grace always teaches us to make good decisions. Verse 12. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So know that it's both positive and negative. Negatively, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to say no to our rejection of God and his ways. But it's also positive. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, to do good, as well as to avoid evil. 
Note that it's also both vertical and horizontal. So vertically, grace trains us to avoid ungodliness and to embrace godliness. Both words to do with how we relate to God, whether our lives reflect the worship that he deserves. But it's also horizontal, about the way we treat each other. Grace trains us to renounce worldly passions and instead to live lives that are upright, that serve our friends and neighbors, that treat them with dignity and respect. Strikingly, Paul also repeats his emphasis on self-control. I wonder if you notice that. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we saw last week how important that self-control is. And once again, Paul stresses its importance when your mouse is hovering over that website again that you know you shouldn't be on. Or your housemate has done that thing that really drives you crazy yet again. It's self-control that helps us to say no to ungodliness, no to anger, no to lust. And yes to godliness, yes to righteousness, yes to kindness, yes to good works. And that's what grace teaches us to do, to renounce ungodliness, to embrace godliness. But how does it do it? For that we need point two, when grace teaches us. We've spoken already about the grace of God that appeared in Jesus But did you notice that there's another appearing in the passage in verse 13? Not the appearing of grace, but the appearing of glory. Grace trains us as we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's glory means his royal splendor, his divine majesty, made visible, made for all to see. And just like God's grace, it's focused on Jesus. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not the glory of our great God, comma, and of Jesus Christ, as if they were two different things, but the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, i.e., our great God, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a direct, explicit affirmation of the deity of Jesus. And you can show that to the next person who tells you that the Bible never says Jesus is God. No, the Bible clearly teaches, as Paul does here, that all God's glory, all his splendor, all his majesty, it will all be revealed on the day that Jesus returns And the whole of history from the first century AD to the last century AD is sandwiched between his two appearings, the appearance of grace when he came to seek and to save the lost and the appearance of glory when he will come again to judge the living and the dead, when he will come again to bring in his new creation And knowing that we live between those two appearings trains us to live godly lives now. 
Earlier this summer, Hannah and I went hiking up a mountain on the Isle of Skye. And from the bottom, it, it didn't look that high. And so we thought, you know what? We'll save ourselves the trouble of carrying the water. We'll leave it in the car. And we can just have some when we get back from the hike. You can probably guess that was a big mistake. Within 10 minutes of the walk, we were already pretty thirsty. By about halfway up the mountain, we were both absolutely gasping for a drink. And yet, and yet, we didn't stop. We kept going because we knew it's going to be worth it for the view at the top. And so too with our godliness. We know it will be hard. We know it requires sacrifice and effort and time. We know it will mean battling hard with our flesh. And grace trains us to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep trying to be godly by telling us it's going to be worth it at the end. When Jesus comes back, when the glory of God appears, grace trains us by pointing us to Jesus' return. And that's not the only way it trains us. It also trains us by pointing us to Jesus' death. And so thirdly, who grace teaches us? As Paul says in verse 14, grace points us to Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That language of Jesus giving himself for us is the language of substitution, of Jesus dying in our place, dying our death for us. And verse 14 gives us two reasons why he did that for us. First, to redeem us from lawlessness. And second, to purify us for good works. So first, Jesus died to redeem us from lawlessness. Uh, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. One of my least favorite things about the summer is flying on budget airlines. So you just hate those little plastic bags that they give you to squeeze all of your toiletries into at the airport. Imagine you're sitting on one of those economy class flights with Ryanair with your, your knees right up against the seat in front of you. And one of the cabin crew comes to you and tells you that you've been unexpectedly upgraded to first class with British Airways. You wouldn't stay sitting in economy class for long, would you? And Paul is kind of saying the same thing here. Jesus, our great God and Savior, the King of the universe, the one who spoke stars into being, has redeemed us from lawlessness. To redeem something means to purchase it from slavery, to to pay the price for its freedom. And when we were slaves to sin, bound by the shackles and chains of our own wrongdoing, Jesus paid the price for us to be set free. He gave his life. He went to the cross for us. So why, when Jesus has paid the price at the cost of his life for us to be set free from sin, 
would we go back to those same lawless ways? Jesus has paid the price for us to leave those old habits behind. He's paid the price for us to to live a better life, a happier life, a more beautiful life. So why would we want to stay in economy class, carrying on with the same old sins, when we could be at first class, living the godly life that God designed us for? Jesus gave himself, he gave his life for us to be set free from those things. Why would we keep living in them? Secondly, though, Jesus also died to redeem us for good works. Verse 14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think we're quite used to the idea that Jesus died to redeem us from something, aren't we? From sin, from death. We're not as used to the idea that Jesus died to redeem us for something, And yet Paul says that it's just as important to the school of grace. So go back to the airline analogy. And imagine you'd been upgraded to first class, not because of a random freebie, but because you'd just been discovered to be the true heir of King Charles III. I know it's a stretch, but work with me. Wouldn't you start to carry yourself just a bit differently? To act like you were, in fact, the next in line to the throne to behave like a member of the royal family should. Because Paul says that's what we are, royals. Not of King Charles's family, but of King Jesus's family. We're a people for his own possession. In the Old Testament, that was the, the special designation given only to the people of Israel to mark them out as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation called to live lives that would adorn the gospel and make it look glorious to the watching world. And Paul says, that's who you are. That's who we are because of what Jesus has done. There's no need to get circumcised if you want to be Israel. There's no need to go and keep the purity laws like the false teachers say. You already are Israel. You already are God's chosen people if you've got Jesus. Because he died to make us a people for his own possession. Called to live lives that adorn the gospel by being zealous for good works. Can you see how this gospel starts to produce godliness in our lives? Not through rules and religion, not by just telling us to try harder, but by showing us God's extraordinary grace, by pointing us to the glory to come, by reminding us of what Jesus has has done for us, that he's redeemed us from those lawless ways, that he's purified us to be this royal people revealing his glory in the world with good works. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we can just sit back and do nothing. Just because grace trains us and not ourselves doesn't mean we can take it easy. I think about your gym. 
Just because you hire a first personal trainer to help you build your muscles doesn't mean you can then just sit back and take it easy. You've still got to go to the gym. You can't just hire a personal trainer and expect them to make you stronger by magic. And so too with the gospel. It's grace that trains us, but we've got to get that grace into our minds. It won't just make us godly by magic. And so think about your physical training. What helps you to make it most effective? When you do it regularly? When you get into a routine? When you do it with other people? And so too with training and godliness. It works best when you get into a habit of preaching this grace to yourself every day. When you do it with others who can help you and encourage you. When you do it regularly throughout the week, not for the sake of keeping rules, not for the sake of becoming anything that you're not already, but simply to meditate on what God in his grace has made you through Jesus. And as you do that, grace will train you to live the life that God calls us to. We had a friend round for dinner on Monday He used to teach at a school in Mayfair as a teacher. And as we were chatting, he confessed that as he cycled through Mayfair, he used to feel really quite jealous of the lifestyle that people there were living and tempted to start chasing after that for himself, to use his money in a not very self-controlled way in order to grasp that lifestyle for himself. And the way that he fought that temptation the way he trained himself to be self-controlled with his money and his aspirations for his life wasn't to add rules or religion, but simply to preach to himself every day as he cycled into work, as he passed the Bentleys and the Mercedes-Benz, to use a verse from the Bible about how much Jesus had done for him or how glorious it was to be part of his family. Or how much more wonderful it would be to be in the new creation. And that's how you train your life. By meditating on the grace of God that saves us. I was telling someone else at Summerlink on Wednesday. who said they'd been going along to a Russian Orthodox church for a while. And it was all do, do, do for hour after hour. Stand in the right place. Kiss the right statue. Say the right liturgy. And it wasn't doing anything for them. Then they came to a Bible teaching church where they heard the gospel. They heard of God's extraordinary grace. And they said, half an hour of that gospel did more for me than all the hours I spent in that Russian Orthodox church. And I wanted to say, of course. Of course it did. Because we're saved by grace. The grace of God has appeared. And by grace, we're trained to carry on in the life that God calls us to. It's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How do you train your life? your desires, your deeds. Grace, grace, grace.
Well, why don't we pray that God would help us to do that? For the grace of God has appeared, training us. Father, we praise you for your grace that has been made manifest in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that it has saved us. We pray that it would train us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.